Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Ed Rollins could have been a contender. He was a boxing phenom until an injury forced him out. But it wasn't long until this fighter got his first gig in politics, working as a campaign coordinator for Robert Kennedy in California. Eventually, he was running Ronald Reagan's re-election effort in 1984, Ross Perot's campaign in 1992 that lasted two months, and Mike Huckabee's in 2007. Ed Rollins has worked on six presidential campaigns. He's one of the guys in the back room coming up with a strategy, making deals, and telling candidates when to duck and when to jab. Rollins is known for being honest and direct, which brings him admiration and trouble, sometimes big trouble. Just over a week after helping Christine Todd Whitman win election as governor of New Jersey in 1993, Rollins himself claimed the campaign had paid black ministers to suppress black turnout. Later, the straight shooter explained his remarks by saying, quote, I was talking trash. Fifteen years ago, Ed Rollins declared, enough, no more politics for him. He wrote his memoir, 30 Years in the Business. He had a baby daughter. He wanted a different life. But something kept pulling Ed Rollins back in. He's worked for Mike Huckabee, and two months ago he left Michelle Bachman's campaign. Today, Rollins says the political landscape is entirely different from when he started. Once a primary was over, uh, even if it was an ideological difference, which has always been kind of an establishment part and the conservative element of the party, the operatives got together. You know, winning was important. You didn't carry grudges. You know, you basically put it together, where Democrats obviously had the big ideological fights and, and uh, never came together. And now the Republicans have the ideological fights. Now we fights. have the ideological fights. The other thing that's changed dramatically uh, is the role of the consultants versus the role of the party. In your, How so? Well, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, uh, if you wanted to run for office, 
you basically hire someone like me that can run a campaign, and I in turn hire a media person that can do your television, and I hire a fundraiser that can go raise money. Is that money. what's happening more that's, and more that's, now? That's, that's absolutely what's happening. I mean, people always say to me, well, why don't the party bosses step in here? Well, there's no party bosses. When did that start to change? Probably in the 70s uh, and maybe even the late 60s. Uh, the people who had run Nixon's campaign and had run Kennedy's campaign were all their pals. They were people who had been their aides on the Hill. They weren't professionals. So they were people who basically uh, wrote Kennedy's speeches, ran Nixon's office. They didn't make a living doing this. They basically believed in the man. And then they went somewhere in the government and worked. Then it started changing somewhat. And, of course, the big change was the money. After the 72 campaign, where, you know, Nixon smashed McGovern, spent over $200 million, probably $100 million of it illegal. He nuked him. He nuked him. He deliberately nuked him. After that, you know, you saw the development of a lot more of the operatives. Uh, and, you know, there's now thousands of operatives across the country. Every time you turn on a TV set, you see, you know, Republican strategists, Democrat strategists. And I've been in the game for four decades I'm one of eight members of the Political Consultants Hall of Fame. Right. I've seen them all, but I don't even know who these people are. You yeah, know? Would you think that there are, are they ideologically or in terms of party affiliation, is that their call to duty? Or are they really just mercenaries and they're for hire? Uh, they're not mercenaries. Very few people really make money in the business. Right. The media guys make some money, and they're about the only ones that do. Most people go into it because they sort of believe in somebody or something. But you pretty much stay one party or the other. You stay a Democrat or you stay a Republican. You see very little crossover. The only time there's a crossover— But you crossed over. Uh, I crossed over— <laughs> No, uh, but I just find, I, think, I mean, very early on, when you were I very did, young. I did, I uh, did. What was your political— uh, uh, You, you know, came I, from what kind of household? I grew up in a Boston Irish Catholic household. My father had moved to California. He'd been stationed there briefly in the war. We went to California in 1948. And, uh, what town again? A town called Vallejo, which is just north of San Francisco, uh, and it's a blue-collar shipyard town. It was a wonderful place to grow up because everybody's old man worked in the shipyard. Right. Anybody who had any money had been bootleggers or had run the, the whorehouses during right. the war. You know, it was yeah. just uh, everybody else— you know, the West. It was the West. There's <laughs> always your, a whorehouse in the know, town of the where, West. Where's your old man work? You know, works yeah. in the shipyard, you know, and they built all this public housing. So you lived next to African-Americans and played ball with them and Mexicans. And it was a classless society. Right. So for me, it was a wonderful, uh, you know, my friends are, are every color and every ethnicity and never thought anything of it. But it was all Democrat. It was no, I mean, I think there weren't 10 Republicans in the entire town. So uh, needless to say, it was an, an experience when I became a prominent Republican. In 1972, I shifted kind of a, you know, it was the war, it was a whole variety of things. Uh, and I just felt that the Democratic Party was too left for me at that point in time. Now, now why? I had real guilt feelings about the war. Travis Air Force Base, where they were bringing the Vietnam kids back, uh, the bodies, you know, it was 10 miles from my house. I broke my back playing football, and so I tried to go to the service, couldn't go. And so I had these real heavy pangs of guilt where I saw friends go and some die and some be mangled. At that point in my life, I thought, those guys in Washington are smart guys. You know, they know what they're doing. Having spent uh, 25 years in Washington and right. highest levels, right. I now know right. they don't, you know. Right. But at that point in time, I thought they did. The Nixon was the first campaign I worked on in 72. I'd been a Bobby Kennedy man in 1968. Uh, probably if he would have lived, I probably would have stayed a Democrat. Uh, and then when I became a Republican, I tried to change 
the Republican Party and make it a working people's party. I was sort of the architect of the Reagan Democrat, which was sort of what I grew up and sort of what you grew up on. So that switch for you, when Kennedy's assassinated in 68 and Nixon becomes president, you weren't signed on to Nixon, so to speak. I was not signed on in 68 at all. Now, uh, how does your association with Bachman begin? What's the genesis of that? How does that work? They, they call you? They reach they, out they to you? They call you. You know, I, I don't run campaigns for a living. I sort of do friends from time to time, or I try and be a change agent for the party. I'll take on an African-American candidate who doesn't have any resources to broaden the base or a woman candidate. I was going to do Mike Huckabee's campaign. I had run his campaign four years ago, and I thought I had a real shot at it. And so I spent six, eight months with him trying to get a real campaign together for him, unlike the one we had last time. So when he made a determination not to run, you know, I'd sort of put a team together, put a strategy together a little bit. And and I was trying to think, okay, is there anybody else that could fit that model? And Bachman came to me, several times came to me. I, I didn't have a good first initial reaction to her. Why? She's a little high-strung. A House member is very difficult. To, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's not a, I'd done <laughs> yeah. Catherine Harris's campaign when she ran for the Senate, and there was, there was too much similarity there. So I, I turned her down, and I said to her, you know, the only way I'll do a campaign at this point in my life is, and you'll understand this totally, Ronald Reagan was the best candidate ever. And Ronald Reagan once said to me, you have to understand, you're my director. He knew what his part was. He knew, right. you know, he understood that someone has Am to— Am I hitting the mark? Someone has to see the whole picture right. as opposed to, you know, you do it, you're, you're concentrating right. on your part, right. but someone has to see the, all the other elements right. of it. And so ever since then, I've always said that. I'm the director. I've done this a lot of times. So I said to her, the only way I'll do this is if I can pick my team. It's your campaign, obviously. You won't do anything you're not happy with, but at the end of the day, i got to run it. If you want to run it, then fine. You go run it, you know, and I'll go back home. So, you know, she came back to me and she said, it's yours. You run it. You do whatever you want to do with it. You know, that was, that was pretty good for about six or eight weeks. And then, uh, you know, obviously uh, we won the straw poll in no time uh, in Iowa. And, I, and when my, she came back again, what, what changed? What changed, I think, was partly uh, she had become a national figure. Mm. And so everyone wanted her to go to Florida and South Carolina. There was more to work with. And at the end of the day, what I kept trying to tell her, your ticket out is Iowa. Romney's the front runner at that point in time, and there'll be a chaser, and the chaser will come out of Iowa or normally New Hampshire, but Romney's going to win New Hampshire. So the only place for you to get your ticket out, sort of like the, the final 64 basketball, no matter how great your team is, you got to win every week, and Iowa's the first week, and the Giuliani example four years ago was the perfect example. Sure. Leading in every poll, every poll. decides he's going to skip everything and go to Florida, and got nothing. Right. Fred Thompson the same way, got nothing. What's happened, do you think, to Bachman during the race? There were all these questions about you know, her provenance and these schools she went to and her teachers and their religious views and so forth. None of that bothered you? None of that. But you don't strike me as an ideological you know, I'm, Christian conservative. I'm a Catholic. I'm like right. you, you know, and, yeah. and I get to struggle with my own faith every day. And yeah. I'm, it's, I'm, very you know, it's very private to me. It's very private to me. It's uh, me and Jesus right. locked away in a room. Uh, no, exactly. And that's the yeah. way it is. You know, I had a little bit of experience with it last time with Huckabee. You know, he was a Baptist minister, and he would go in the churches on Sunday and just flick a switch. The politics of the week shut down on Sundays. He could go in there and give this extraordinary sermon, and then the switch went back on. He never took the sermon out of the church 
into the politics. And in her particular case, what I said to her early on is I said, okay, everybody in this race is against Obama, okay? So saying you're against Obama, against Obamacare, all the rest of it, it's all fine, well, and good, except it doesn't move you forward. What you have to say is, I want to abolish Obamacare, and here's what I want to put in its place. And I could never get to that hurdle. She liked the applause lines, the uh, the Tea Party type stuff. and, And I think part of it was she just wasn't... We threw the campaign together very quickly. These things take a year of preparation, sure. and we didn't have that. What happened with Huckabee, do you think? Uh, I think he basically uh, had come right out of the governorship. It was sort of like the next thing to do, uh, not that anybody gave His heart any, wasn't in it? At this time, his heart wasn't in it. You know, my sense is he'd have been a great candidate. I was convinced it was going to be a duel between Huckabee and Romney. It would have been. I, I'm telling you, it would have been. I would have and, been and, mono and mono. No, it would have been mono and mono, and I had it all strategized. And that was, that's, that's, that was <laughs> you my, must be pissed. I, I am. That's why I had it, and I knew. That was your I, game That was seven, my, my game, and I'd, I'd spent uh, two years thinking about it. You know, but as I said to him, I can't want it more than you want it. Yeah, a good point. And, and if yeah. you, and do you find sometimes you do? I love the game. Yeah, but it's amazing how you said that to say you're against Obamacare and not step up and and, uh, and offer your alternative. It's amazing how many politicians on both sides of the aisle underestimate. It just doesn't do enough for you to say, you know, kill Obama, so to speak, right. his administration. You made a comment in an interview you were giving, which is you said, you know, was Kane a serious guy? Or was he just an entertainer? And then you said, does he have the temperament to be president? Is that, in your mind, one of the key elements of the temperament of being president, is being able to create policy and have ideas? Well, it's, it's, I worked for four presidents, uh, and I've spent uh, you know, eight, ten years of my life in a White House and 25 years of my life around And go through all four and describe how they were in terms of their own authorship of public policy. Nixon was brilliant. Very yeah. aggressive mentally. And, and gets great credit in the foreign policy arena, but he did great things on the domestic. He created the EP. You know, Ford was, was, had been a decent House leader, you know, was sort of an accident. Not the temperament for the presidency. Not the big picture. He, sure. was, not, he was not a big, big picture guy. You know, Carter obviously was, uh, was not someone I worked for, but I got to watch him up close. And I what was had, his problem? Yeah, you know, he was a micromanager. He was an engineer, right. and he wanted, he wanted to manage everything. And the reality is the president isn't a management job. The president is an inspirational job, and he sets a direction. He has four or five big decisions to make every day. If you have an inability to make decisions, then they basically stack up on you. And you thought Carter was weak on that? I thought Carter was a micromanager. I thought Bill Clinton overthought it. Bill Clinton had an ongoing seminar. But he was viewed as a very decisive guy. You think that that's an unfair Uh, assessment of him? Let let me just say this. I, I think Bill Clinton became a much better president as time went on, and I think as we reflect back on his presidency, there's not many people in America who wouldn't rather have him than who we have today. Right. And that doesn't mean he wouldn't be a very viable candidate again. You know, he was a charming man. He had a great ability to make people feel good about themselves. Uh, you know, Reagan, who I, I worked for and was closest to, uh, you know, Reagan had a, a core of beliefs that he had, like you, uh, in addition to having a career, he basically was interested in politics for 30 years. He thought on paper. People underestimated his intelligence. He read he wrote. He knew who he was. And he had three major principles, four major principles of things that he wanted to do. One is he, he was been fighting communists since his days in Hollywood. So he made a gigantic investment to rebuild the defenses of the country so that the Soviets would treat us with respect. Right. Just to throw, for, for arguments like the liberal side to this, 
I've seen this go in cycles where you have a lull, a crisis of the spirit, so to speak, after the Vietnam War, and we do collapse defense spending, and that's a mistake. But then Reagan comes and starts to ramp up defense spending again. For my money, we probably would have less of a swing of the pendulum if the wars themselves weren't such a waste of time. Mm -hmm. My question for you is, did you think that the Vietnam War amounted to anything? Certainly not today. I mean, what what it amounted to is that 50,000-plus men sure. were killed, uh, and we divided this country. What impact did it have on our lives at all? Well, it had, it had a terrible impact because it divided America. And I think to a certain extent, as you reflect back, and I was very pro-Vietnam War. Uh, Why? Because my father had been in the service. Everybody around me was in the service. So it was, it was a real basic my country right or wrong. My country, my country right or wrong. Right. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, you know, my sense is I'm very close to military people. I, I have great affection for them. Both my brother and, and, and my father were, were servicemen. But I saw the, the tragic stuff that happened. At the end of the day, I like the Powell Doctrine. Cap Weinberger basically asked the flag officers who had been the captains and the majors in Vietnam to give us rules. Tell us what are the rules of engagement. Those four things, I'll try to remember exactly. Don't ever go to war where the U.S. doesn't have a real interest. Don't ever go to war unless we have American support behind it. Always go with overwhelming force so that our troops are not put at disadvantage and always have an exit strategy. Right. Have we had that in this, these last two wars? No, we did not. We had it in the first Iraq, the Kuwait war. We went with overwhelming force. We ended H.W. Up, Bush. Yeah. Going into Afghanistan, giving that government the opportunity to give up uh, bin Laden, getting the Taliban out of there was a worthwhile effort. In hindsight, who cared about Iraq? It didn't matter. Uh, you know, we, we look at these two wars, and I think to myself, if I was the president, forget about Iraq, I would have assassinated Saddam Hussein later on somehow, or taken him prisoner and put him on trial. But I would have built the mother of all military bases, right? Because Pakistan is the enemy. Sure, as far is, as I'm sure. Is. Most Pakistan is the they're, they're most complete. dangerous country in the world. I would build the mother of all military bases right on the Pakistani border. But while I was doing that, I would fly around the world, and I would get the leaders of the most reliable allies who had some funds, and I'd say to them, you you must give us something. We're going to have a coalition of 12 or 14 countries, and if you don't, I'm going to make your life miserable. I wanted to have a half a million men on the ground in Afghanistan. You know, leaflet the whole place, say, get out, we're coming, and drone them. And if they make one move we don't like, we go and we just crush Pakistan with 500,000 people. What do you think of that idea? Uh, it, it's, uh, for a Hollywood liberal, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty darn no, good. No, but I, know, but I know that's where terrorism, that is their cradle. I think, the, Pakistan. I think the battle against terrorism is an ongoing war, and I think to a certain extent we need to continue it. Uh, my fear of, of this whole thing, and, you know, as you look... In the future, as a strategist, you always, I always try and look to the future. The next region, we all focus right now on the Middle East, but the Pacific is really the big region. I mean, it's China, China, uh, you know, Japan, Vietnam, all these, all these emerging countries. And, and I have a Chinese daughter. I adopted a child from China and been to China 20 times. I love China. China is not a military threat to us at this point in time. China's building submarines to protect their assets. They've never been an invading country. They're a country that basically, you know, in the absurdity of us talking about the emerging China, China's been there for 5,000 years. Sure. You know, they could have owned Korea they, if they wanted Right, and, and, or anyplace else. They have watched us emerge. They've not watched, you know, and they've watched many countries come and fall. My sense is every time China builds an aircraft carrier, we, we don't have to go nuts and worry about going to war. You know, for me, it's my country right or wrong, but never unfunded. And that is that the problem in our society today is that we need to raise taxes. Do you believe we need to raise taxes? I believe we need to raise revenue. 
So beyond taxes, how will we raise revenue? Well, you get people back to work. No one has come forth with a plan to me to show me how raising taxes basically does any of the rest of it. Uh, you know, I mean, I find it appalling today when you read in the, in the New York Post, uh, you know, all the major corporations that, you know, are not paying taxes. I mean, they've right. got all the loopholes in the world. So to me, I'd eliminate all the loopholes. I would, uh, you know, I don't think— Everybody's got to pay something. Everybody has to pay something. Right. And, and, and I think every— That should be the law. Well, I think every American would want to pay something, even if right. it's 50 or 100 buck minimum at, 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 the end of, at the end of your bill. I mean, you can't have— But the taxes that corporations are not paying is merely going toward exactly executive pay, which has become, you know, it's, what is it now, 300 no, times the actual yeah, it's, workforce? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's obscene. And, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, the idea that I, I teach at Hofstra, these young kids that are, that are great kids, uh, you know, your, your neck of the woods out there, uh, you know, blue-collar kids coming out of school can't find jobs. That eliminates hope, and somehow we have to, we have to fix that. You asked me about Reagan earlier. Reagan believed deeply in this country, and he inspired this country, and he made Americans feel good about themselves again. He was proud of America. He got up every day and was proud of America. To me, Reagan, because I have a very different view of Reagan than you do. He was a failed actor who, in my business, what happens is you become ripe and you fall from that tree, and you go, and he went into this other field because it was a role for him to play. But more importantly, when you say Reagan made people feel good about themselves, I accept where some people see that, but what Reagan's to our society was, if it's a choice between you having a swimming pool and you've worked really, really hard and some poor person getting some public entitlement or going to school or what have you, damn it all, you should have your swimming pool. The government's making that choice for you. And Reagan seduced a whole generation of Americans into believing you should have what you want more than they should have what they need. And don't feel guilty well, about it. Well, th- I think that's... That's how I viewed it. Yeah, I think that's overstated. I mean, obviously, you're entitled to your point of view. Reagan grew up in the generation, as did I. I'm 68. My old man said, you're going to college. I don't care what you major in, but you're going to college. And when I had that education, my life was going to be better than my father's life. And obviously it has been. Uh, and that was the dream. And, and uh, you know, I mean, that's I get changed. It, it's changed. And, and, that's, and that's the scary part today. You have a daughter. I have a daughter. I look in the eyes of my daughter at the world. And I once said when she was an infant, I said, I hope someday she doesn't regret the fact that we took her out of China. You know, and at that time, it was a ridiculous statement to make because China was never going to be anything. China is today an extraordinary country. She might have been better off there, opportunity-wise. Opportunity-wise. She's taking Chinese. uh, but She came to state college. (laughs) Right, right. At the end of the day, you know, I mean, she's lived a great life, and she's a wonderful— How old is your daughter now? She's 16, and she's the joy of my life. But it just—I guess the thing that bothers me the most— I first went to Washington in February of 1973. When I went there, it was plenty partisan— but there was a social environment to it. You, right. you didn't hate each other. Tip was, O'Neill and Reagan working together, and, Teddy and, Kennedy. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, Teddy yeah. Kennedy and... and, and, and uh, when the fight Jake, was Jake, over, you shook hands. You shook hands, you went on, you had a drink. Chris Matthews is a perfect example. He was Tip O'Neill's press secretary. You know, I'd yell at him four or five times in the course of the day. We'd go out and have a drink with great yeah. friends today, you know. Yeah. Today, there's a bitterness, there's a hatred. Why do you no think that is? Why? You know, I think part of it is going to the... To, uh, Nixon. Nixon was part of it. I think it's Nixon's impeachment. I think the ugliness began more. It started then, and then it became the combination of the Jim Wrights and the, and the New Gingrich. That was the real battle. Not just knocking out a president. We knocked out a speaker on a BS deal. It wasn't like he was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was a stupid book deal. Petty theft at, at best and, and not even theft. Then what happened is they started drawing the lines in a way 
that basically you couldn't have competition. So now that's become an industry, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. This kind of, this kind no. of uh, intel, no. again, which brings us to Kane. Right. You know, it, with this particular primary season for the Republicans, you you got a guy or a woman for that matter who are really, they're at the top and they're looking good and they, it's a bright, shining day for them. And then within a week or two, they're gone, like Kane. Is this the condition for all people in your profession, the political advisor, you're working with someone, you know everybody's got something in their closet. Right. Do you think Kane's people, they obviously knew about this restaurant well, he association does, thing. He doesn't have a real campaign. Kane got in this kind of on a lark. He never expected to be a front runner. Right. He never expected He's to, winging it. He's winging it. And he's winging it on substance. Uh, he didn't put the time in. He doesn't have a team. His team is second tier at best. Where, you know, I mean, the so had he had an advisor, a legit operation and an advisor, as you would understand it, they might have dug well, this the up first, and said, the first, the first thing I do in every campaign, it started when I was running assembly races in California. What would you do? I would sit down and I'd say, Alex, you want to run for the assembly? I want to check for $5,000. First of all, don't call me Alex. Excuse me. Alex. Okay. <laughs> Mayor Baldwin. Mayor Baldwin. Uh, Mr. Baldwin. The first thing I'd do is ask you for $5,000, and I'd say, what, I'm going to hire a private detective. As if I was your enemy. Yeah. And I'm going to go find out everything I can about you. And I'd have candidates say, well, why are you going to do that? i said, say, well, I'm going to do it on him, too. <laughs> but at the end of the day, all he has to do is yeah. write a check. But i got to have cover for it. Yeah, I have to cover. I have to. The first thing I do is I sit down and I say, pretend I'm your priest. You confess yeah. all your confess yeah. all your sins. It's going to come out sooner. Or later. I will tell you whether they're mortal of you. You're not capable of making for the your own good. For your own me. good. I've heard it all. You know, I don't care. Just it's what's uh, her name? What color uh, dress and, was and, she wearing? And, and they always lie. Yeah, isn't that they always lie. And when then it does come out, they go, you know, I never thought that was going to happen. Now, how could you be a CEO of a trade? This is not the Pentagon. This is not a gigantic organization. Right. And you have two. Not uh, one, but two. But two in a year apart and probably other things that were, you know. Uh, that didn't come to charges. And, and, and you wouldn't say the first thing you would say is, hey, can we check this out or can we go look at it? So it's amateur hour. I mean, obviously, he's not going to be the nominee of the party and wasn't even if this hadn't come about. It's a sad thing for the party, sad thing for him. At the end of the day, I mean, having an articulate African-American is a very important thing for the Republican Party because we don't have many. And I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, he may survive the, this trauma, but he's not going to survive this in the sense of being a viable candidate. Do you think that Perry has any shot at the nomination right now? If I was Perry's strategist, Perry has $20 million at least sitting there. He's doing well with money. He's doing well with money. But he's still a Texas governor. But all he has to do is win two states. Right. He has to win Iowa. He has to win South Carolina. You think he will? Who do you predict will win South Carolina? Uh, whoever wins Iowa. Oh, you do. You think they'll go hand in hand? They do go. So hand I think per you do think so. Uh, do they always, or have they sometimes not? Sometimes they don't. I think that Romney will win Iowa and Perry will win South. Carolina. If Romney wins Iowa, Iowa. Which, he, which he could, right? He could. Uh, he's got great strength there. He wins that. He wins New Hampshire. He's on his way. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. More from my conversation with Ed Rollins in a minute. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 
You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. I'm talking with Ed Rollins. Obviously, in the, in the Whitman campaign, there was the voter suppression issue that you had to deal with. And I'm wondering, what did you learn from that experience, and how do you think that's played out now? Meaning, do you think that's still an issue in races now? Well, walking around money is still an issue. My mistake there was not that I had done it. Describe that mistake. What had happened is it was a public finance race. Floria did not have good relationships with the incumbent. Jim Floria was running against Whitman. He was, the, he was the Democrat incumbent governor. He had run out of money. What happened to him? He was a good governor from a Democrat perspective, but he wasn't very charismatic. So what happened is we had money to go into the community and basically have walking around money. And the difference is when Democrats go out and basically say, I want you to turn out your churches, your bus drivers, all the rest of it, we go out and say, here's the payday you would normally get. Just, you know, don't turn your vote out. Right. Uh, How did you feel about that? Paying people not to vote. I didn't feel I was paying people not to vote. I felt I was paying people who always get a check on Election Day uh, not to do their job. If people wanted to go vote, they could go vote. I'm always for people voting. You know, I've spent my life, and I believe in democracy, and I think, you know, the bottom line is just whoever votes, votes. But in this particular case, there, there was an opportunity. It was a very close election. I was doing a press briefing two weeks after. It had nothing to do with the Whitman race. Uh, a reporter asked me, how did she get 25% of the vote, and how did, how did we have, get out the vote? Uh, and I explained to him. It became a big story because right. we— Because Cause it did look like you were paying people out to vote. And we were not. But Carvel and Begala and those guys in the, in the Clinton pounced team, on that. they pounced on it, and they basically hammered me. How did you feel about that? It's a, it's a tough game, and at the end of the day, you know, my own party hammered me a little bit. I had gone off and done parole, and so I was sort of the traitor who came back, and, uh, and I was not close to Bush at the end because I had been Jack Kemp's camp. You know, a lot of little stuff that sure. came into it. Uh, you know, but you it, got Whitman elected. I got Whitman elected. I know the game. I know how to make it work. And part of the reason I know the game 
is I was trained as a Democrat. I was I started in the coalitional politics by Jess Unruh, you know, and and uh, uh, and Jess Unruh, who ran all the campaigns in California, and Kennedy was Kennedy's guy sure. in California. Yeah. told me there were three things that matter. And he said, sounds very simple, but it's not very simple. You find your voter, you communicate with your voter, you get them to the polls. If you're doing anything else besides those three things, you're wasting Wasting your time. time. When I watch you on TV, and you you seem like a tough guy, and you seem like a very, very uh, capable guy, at the same time, you don't seem to me like you're in some line with Atwater and Rove. No, I'm not. Why do I feel that way about you? Because I'm not. Uh, You know, I I have a different history. I, I call it the way I see it. My mouth has gotten me in a lot of trouble over the years because I have been too honest. Right. Uh, and you ask me a question, I'm going to give you the best answer I can, you right. know. But at the end of the day, I'm an American. You know, I get up every day. I don't think of myself as a Republican. That's not the first thing. I think of right. myself as a father. And then the second thing, I think of myself as a husband. And no matter how diametrically opposed you and I may be, if we really sat here for hours, we would enjoy each other's company. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we'd get up and we'd go try and make America a better place. Yeah. That's how I got into politics. Those are the kinds of people I was you around. shake hands at the end of the day. At the end of the day, you know, I was a fighter. I was, I was, I've been a fighter all my life. I've never been a hater. I'm not a hater. You and I will probably both go to the grave disagreeing about Ronald Reagan, which is okay. But I wanted to say thank you so much but for But when we get that. to heaven, he'll be there to greet us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I hope that I have a private cabin then. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.